So if you take your Bibles and uh, turn to Acts 23, we continue our study in the book of Acts. And one of the things uh, I think that is helpful to us, particularly as we started last week in uh, a series of, of passages where Paul is defending himself against various groups of religious leaders, either Jewish or Roman leaders, we learn, in, in some sense, how Paul understands how to act when you're in a situation when there is significant pushback against the gospel, when there are significant questions about the gospel, when you are under pressure from the surrounding culture, Paul's, uh, the, the way he operates and provides a model for us of how we are to respond. Now, to be fair, our situation here in the United States is much better than in many other parts of the world. There are plenty of places around the world where there is significant pushback against believers. And where government pressure and social pressure and persecution, real persecution, takes place. And so, in many ways, we ought to be thankful for the situation we are in. But there are times when there is pushback, there is hostility... And how are we to respond? What are, we to, what are we to do? And in this text, I believe we see three very important imperatives. Imperatives to guide us as God's people, the church, in responding to pushback, responding to hostility, to respond to the opposition we may receive because we are following Jesus Christ. Now, this is certainly not an exhaustive list of, of all the, the things we ought to do in a hostile or pushback situation, but it's three important imperatives that are foundational, I think, to help us know how to execute and follow Christ when under pressure. Before we get into the first imperative, let me orient us to the situation we just had the scripture read. Paul uh, previously, uh, the day before, had been arrested in uh, Jerusalem. He was accused of bringing a Gentile into a forbidden temple area, which is punishable by death. He was also accused of speaking against the law, of speaking against uh, the, 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 the Jewish people, and speaking against the temple. And because of that, when he addressed the crowd to try to answer those questions, we looked at this last week when he shared his personal testimony of what life, would, what life was like for Paul before he came to faith in Jesus, uh, how he came to faith in Jesus, and now how God had changed him, there's a near riot. He is almost killed. And the Roman tribune, we find out, Claudius Lysias, rescues him and has now decided to put him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, a group of 70 leaders and the high priest who would examine him because the Roman tribune is trying to understand why is this man, for what reason are we having all this disturbance in Jerusalem? And so that's where we pick up the story in verse 30 of uh, Acts 22, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this is the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. 
Now, this is a little bit unusual for a Roman tribune to be demanding that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, who was responsible for the religious life of, of, of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, to command them to meet is a little bit odd. And it very well may have been that they convened the meeting in order to keep peace with Rome, and sort of an unofficial meeting takes place. But there you have the Jewish council, 70 leaders of of, of, of the Jewish people. They were sort of like the Supreme Court of Israel at the time. And they now have Paul before them, and Paul is going to address them. The 70 on the council plus the high priest. And the first um, sort of imperative here that I think we see from Paul's uh, response to this situation, the first imperative is this, that as God's people, we must respect our God-given authorities. Now, respect does not mean we have to agree with our authorities. And, the, and respect doesn't mean we, we have to sit passively and not speak out when we need to speak out. But it means that however we want to uh, you know, speak out and appeal to our authorities, we must have a respectful attitude, believing and acting, knowing that all authorities at every lever, level have been put there by God himself. So here's how this plays out. Verse 1 of chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It's interesting, he says he looked intently. It's like a godly stare down. It kind of reminds me of boxers, you know, you know in the weigh-in. You know, you know. He stares intently at them, and then he basically says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. What he's saying is, I am not guilty of the charges you brought before me. You are accusing me of speaking against the law. I am not speaking against the law. In fact, I believe that my message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, is consistent with the law and the prophets. This is, it's, it's not like the Old Testament is saying one thing and, and now Paul is saying a different thing. He's saying all the law and the prophets, the worship in the temple, all of it was pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. I'm not guilty. Verse 2, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. We're not off to a good start. And this, of course, would have been a violation of law, actually. In the Mosaic law, there were strict rules that you did not punish anyone until there was due process, similar to the laws that are on the books in our country. You needed to bring the charges. You needed to, to prove the charges. You, you needed to have a trial. You needed to have uh, witnesses. And yet this high priest, who was supposed to uphold the law, is ordering Paul to be slapped in the face. It was terribly disrespectful and a violation of law, even as the council was supposed to be upholding the law. Now, some of you are going to get a little too excited about Paul's response. Some of you aggressive people, you're going to say, yes, thankfully now God has allowed me to trash talk those that oppose me, right? Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? It's interesting that, uh, you know, Paul, you know, calls you know, the high priest, a whitewashed wall. And that's a reference in, in, in Exodus 13. 
10 through 16, where, where God uh, uh, sort of evaluates the leadership of Israel then by saying you're a whitewashed wall. In other words, you're a wall that's rotten. You're a wall that's unstable, but you've whitewashed it to make it look like it's okay, but underneath it's rotten to the core. Prophet Ezekiel is talking about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. That they may try to act like they're doing the will of God, but underneath they are very far from God. And this is a powerful statement that Paul makes. It's interesting says God is going to strike you. Now what's interesting about this is that Ananias will be struck down. It will take some time. Ananias was a, not a good high priest. Even Josephus, the historian, talks about how Ananias would pilfer the temple treasury for his own largesse. He would often bribe different rulers instead of, you know, shepherding the spiritual condition of God's people Israel. He was basically trying to curry favor with Rome to protect himself. He will be a high priest for about 10 years, from about 80, 48, 49, for the next decade. But the people hated him because of his dishonesty, his corruption. He was a whitewashed wall. And in AD 66, when the Jewish people revolted against Roman rule, they tracked him down. And his brother found him hiding in an aqueduct, burned down his house, and then got him and killed him. So in some sense, you wonder, was Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, making a prophecy about him? But now verse 4, and this is very fascinating. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priests? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Then he quotes scripture, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, boy, if you read the commentaries, there's a lot of ink spilled about this whole text. Did Paul lose his cool? Is he wrong? Is he quasi-apologizing here? Some people think that when Paul says, I didn't know it was the high priest, that Paul is being sarcastic. Some of you would love for that to be true. I didn't know it was a high priest. In other words, any high priest who orders me to be struck before a fight, you know, what, 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 this is the high priest? Really? I think it's probably safer just to take Paul's words at face value. Because this convening of the council may not have been an official meeting, because the Roman tribune called for the meeting, not the high priest or the council itself, it may very well have been that nobody was sort of dressed up in their official attire for a meeting like this. There are 70 people there, 71 with the high priest. There's others, the Roman uh, you know, tribune is there, Claudius Lysias, maybe he had some people. It may have been a very large room. It may not have been clear to Paul. Maybe he didn't know exactly. Maybe he didn't recognize the high priest as possible. There were several changes in the high priest throughout Paul's lifetime. Maybe he didn't know. I tend to think that he's just saying, oh, I didn't know that you said that. And then what Paul does is, he says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I think what Paul is saying is he's acknowledging that either the tone and the strongness of, of Paul's response is not be appropriate given the scripture that he quotes. You not speak evil against a leader of your people. And I think what Paul is doing here by quoting scripture to evaluate his response while we understand that response and some of you wish it was right because you know you talk like this. I think Paul is saying 
I am under the law. I recognize the law of God. And I recognize that I need to be under the authority even of rulers that aren't good, even rulers that I don't agree with, even rulers that are breaking the law even as they, 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 they say they are following God's law, and that I need to respect, not necessarily agree, not necessarily that I can't appeal, not necessarily that I can't respectfully submit a, a different approach to my leadership, but I must be in submission to them in terms of my respect because God, as Paul writes in Romans 13, has said that every authority has been put there by God himself. Well, there's a lot for us to think about, I think. I've been three churches since I've been an adult. I have heard many believers and I have heard myself say things about various leaders that God has appointed that were over me in some context, whether it's civil authorities, educational authorities coaches of my children's sports teams where my speech about those leaders did not measure up to God's command to respect all leaders. I have heard Christians in all the churches I've been a part of, that president that just got elected is not my president. Oh yes he is. I remember being terribly convicted um, was living overseas at the time and one of uh, the persons I worked with um, was from the Ivory Coast. And we prayed for him and his country because they had an election coming up. And I remember I, I sort of lost track of that. We prayed. He was concerned about the unrest that could occur in his country. And I remember he came into, uh, the, the, uh, into our meeting with a big smile on his face and he said, I have to tell you, I never thought I would see it in my lifetime, but the Ivory Coast is a far greater country than the United States. And we said, really? He says, oh yes. You have one president, President Obama at the time, but in my country, we have two. We're twice as good as you. And then I tried to engage him as I probably would have engaged many of my American friends and tried to get him to analyze the situation. And what was fascinating to me is while he grieved the situation where they had controversy of who was the president and the violence that was taking place in this country, I could not get him to say one negative word by either of the two men who were claiming to be president. I felt like I had a lot to learn from him. Just a couple of questions for us. How do you talk about your God-given authorities? Your boss, school leaders, teachers, coaches, music teachers, the mayor, the town council, the governor, their senators, your representatives at the state and federal level, the president, the vice president. How do you speak about them? Again, we can appeal. Thankfully, we have that freedom. You can share things, right? You can lobby for, for things that you think should be changed in our country, but do you do it respectfully? Honoring the God-given authorities that God has put in charge of us. When's the last time we prayed for these individuals? When's the last time you prayed for something positive about your boss, 
through school leaders, teachers, mayor, town council, governor. And when's the last time you wrote a note thanking them for their service? You don't have to agree with everything they did, but when's the last time you, you shared thank you for serving? I'm praying for you. Paul, I think, understands that he has a particular mission to preach the gospel. He has a particular mission to present the gospel to the Gentiles in particular. And he will not allow disrespect in his own heart. He will not allow himself to be diverted from preaching the gospel and to have his message tainted because he's disrespectful to his God-given authorities. I think we have a lot to learn about that. That's the first imperative. But there's a second imperative. And that is this, God's people need to make the resurrection of Jesus the main issue. Look at verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. In other words, he's trying to say there is no disconnect from a following the law and then understanding Jesus to be the Messiah. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul brings out the resurrection as being the main issue. The issue that he wants, if there's going to be division, not his political uh, talk and his disrespect talk. He wants the resurrection of Jesus to be front and center. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit. They tend to be less supernatural in their perspective. The Pharisees acknowledge them all. There's a great clamor. And they end up almost... uh, uh, The discussion becomes so violent, verse 10. The tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. Now, some of you, when you read this, you say, well, you know what? Was this really what Paul's doing is putting the resurrection front and center? Or was this a clever debate trick to gum up the works? I know some of you are thinking that. I thought that too. It sort of looks like that on its face. But I think when you look at all of Paul's defenses in Acts 24... Look at that next week. He uh, comes before Felix, who's a a Roman uh, governor of of, of some repute that he will have to give a defense to. In Acts 26, he will talk to Agrippa. And in both of those defenses, Paul makes the resurrection the key issue. He says it over and over again, not as a debate trick, not to gum up the works, because that's what he actually believed. It's the resurrection of Jesus that, that Paul wants to be the devi- divisive issue and not these other things. It's not a debate trick, it's what Paul believes. And when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, he's not, not only talking about the fact that the Old Testament did predict the resurrection of the dead, look at Daniel 12, but the whole complex of resurrection teaching that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ where Paul's gospel rises or falls on that event actually happening. And I think imperative number two is that God's people, we as God's people, need to make the resurrection of Jesus Christ the most important issue People are not going to 
be too upset if you teach people about some of the statements that Jesus makes. I mean, Jesus says, love your neighbor. I see plenty of signs in Princeton that have love your neighbor in the front. Comes right out of the Old Testament. Comes right out of Jesus. Now, no one's going to, you know, no, no one really faults Jesus if you talk about how Jesus cares for the marginalized and the poor. People say, that's great. People are actually not too upset about Jesus saying, forgive one another. Particularly if they are in need of forgiveness. Not so much if they're the ones, you know, who need to, to ask for forgiveness, but or they have to give forgiveness to someone else. They're not excited about that, but that's not divisive about Jesus. What's divisive about Jesus is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He died, he said, for our sins. He was buried. He rose again to demonstrate that what he said about himself was true. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now he is the Lord of the universe. That's what offends people about Jesus. First of all, to tell someone that they are so morally compromised they can't get to God apart from Jesus, that's offensive. To say that Jesus is the only way to get to God, that's offensive. And to say that Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Lord, and therefore we all have a choice to make, either to bow our knee to the Lord of the universe or reject him, that's what becomes problematic about Jesus. I would say our culture is pretty happy with the baby Jesus. But the resurrected and ascended Jesus is altogether different. It put Jesus on par with God. He's the Lord. He's the only way to get right with God. He deserves our wholehearted worship and devotion. That's the Jesus that will invite hostility and pushback. But that's the Jesus that needs to be front and center in our lives in our mouths and what we speak about a couple of questions if i took your if i if i met with your co-workers this afternoon did a little focus group about you and asked them you know what's the most important thing to this to, to you the, you know and after and your co-workers mentioned that would 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 they ever get to the issue of jesus Have they ever heard from your mouth the fact that your hope is bound up in the resurrected and ascended Jesus? Is that the message they've ever heard from you? If I talk to your classmates, maybe you're in middle school, and talk, would they even have any idea that what you say on Sunday morning is that the resurrected, ascended Jesus is the center of your life? But would anyone around you know that at school? Heard from your mouth? I, I, I feel convicted about it. I feel like there are some of my neighbors think that the most important thing to me is the Dallas Cowboys and the Barcelona soccer team. Not going to get you to heaven. <laughs> what do we talk about? Where's our real hope? And if that is our real hope, the resurrected Jesus, it ought to come out in sort of normal ways. We're going to be praying for those opportunities. We're going to be sharing for that. I think I've mentioned before, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I was on a team of people in town. Most of them were unchurched, and they were freaked out about the election, and there were two of us, two of us who were followers of Jesus. And everyone was freaked out in this team of people about the election, and they asked the two of us, are you freaked out about the coming election? And both of us sort of blurted out, not at all. 
What's wrong with you? And then we both said, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He's coming back. He's going to fix this place. And that's where my hope is, not in Washington, D.C. or not in any of these political parties. That's the message that needs to be front and center in our lives, in our speech. That's the second imperative. There's the third imperative. And briefly, I want to mention that. The third imperative is this, is that God's people must draw strength from the powerful presence of Jesus Christ. God's people must draw strength from the powerful presence of Jesus Christ. Notice what happens. Paul has to be removed from the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders. The spiritual leaders are about to kill each other and Paul. The Roman tribune has to save him from that. And in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. For Paul, who was wanting to go to Rome, everything must seem to be going wrong. He came to Jerusalem to give the Jerusalem church a love offering from the Gentile churches because Jerusalem church was facing difficulty because of a famine. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem to deliver the love offering. Then he wants, to, he wants to go to Rome. That's where he feels called to go. And now everything has gone wrong. He's almost killed. There's riots. The, the Sadducees and Pharisees almost tear him apart. He must have wondered, what has gone wrong? Where is God? Where, am I going to make it to Rome? And Jesus comes and assures him. He says, take courage. If you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus assures Paul in a very specific way that you are going to get to Rome. You've testified to me now in Jerusalem, you're going you're to make it to Rome. That must have been a tremendous encouragement. The personal presence of Christ guiding, directing, giving courage to Paul. Now, unfortunately... For us, we don't, we don't always get that kind of specificity, okay, when we're dealing with a trial or a difficulty. But the principle is still there, is that no matter what your circumstances are, the personal presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you is with you and will carry you through your life no matter how chaotic it feels and no matter how the circumstances of your life seem to be opposing everything that you are, feel that God is calling you to do. The presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit is there to comfort you, to guide you, to strengthen you, and we need to grab hold of that. You see, we read in other, uh, in Romans 8, Paul talks about the presence of Christ in the Holy Spirit in us. And what does that Holy Spirit do? It testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. It reminds us that we're God's child. But it also says, not just are you children, you were heirs. You were heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of Christ that every believer has is supposed to encourage you and strengthen you no matter what your circumstances look like. And of course, in that section where it says, not only you heirs of God, you're fellow heirs of Christ, and remember, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may not be glorified with him. And later on in that chapter in Romans 8, <clears throat> Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
And one of the problems we all have is when we are in difficulties, when we are in trials, and lots of you are facing all kinds of trials. I suspect before the summer's out, there'll be an, another group of us facing difficult uh, medical diagnoses, difficult job situations, economic uh, deprivation of some kind, relational conflict with members of our family or others that we care about. And we will be tempted to let those circumstances tell us that we're in trouble, we're doomed, there's no hope, there's no, there's no way to get through this. But the presence, power of the presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit is there to tell you no. You're a child of God, you're an heir, your future is secure, your present is secure. I am with you, Jesus says. And we, we're supposed to be involved in the Great Commission, right? We're supposed to go and tell people about the good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again, and ascended. We're supposed to tell the good news and baptize and teach people. And what, is, what does Jesus say? I will be with you to the end of the age. And when we have a sense of Christ's personal presence with us, we can handle whatever is going on in our life. Some of you know Jack Wald. He was one of our global partners in uh, North Africa. Jack was a good friend. Before he left, uh, he was at Westley Road Church. Before he left for North Africa, I, I was meeting with him for lunch. And I, I'm not sure Jack will remember this, but he was telling me about all the different trials he was going through. And he, he had this kind of a flow chart that he had made up. It started like this. I'm having trouble in my business. I think we're gonna, we might go bankrupt. If we go bankrupt, I'm going to run out of money. If, if we really get bankrupt, I'm going to lose my house. If I lose my house and my insurance, I'm going to be homeless. Then my kids are going to leave and, and go somewhere else and get other help. My wife will probably leave me. And then I'll be alone. And then I'll get sick. And I don't have any insurance. And then I'm going to die. And I kind of said, well, that's, uh, that's depressing, Jack. But then he said at the very end, in his little flow chart, it says, and then I will be with Jesus. He had another flow chart. This one was different. My kids might be in a terrible accident. They may die. My wife might die. I'll be alone. If I'm alone, I won't be able to function very well. Then I'll probably lose my business and I'll be bankrupt. And then I'll lose my house and I'll be homeless and I won't have insurance and I'll get sick and I'll die. But at the bottom it said, and then I will be with Jesus. He looked at me and said, I guess the most important thing I need to remember here is that Jesus is with me now. And will be with me forever. And all of these bad circumstances, the worst that can happen to me is I end up with Jesus. See, the reality is, if God isn't planning to call you home to be with him, you're indestructible. But if God is calling you home, you're going home to him. So I ask all of us another series of questions. Are you cultivating the sense of the personal presence of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit's trying to tell you you're a child of God. You're an heir. Your future is secure. I'm with you. I will help you accomplish all that I want you to accomplish. And when your, your heart stops beating, you will be with me forever. Take courage. Is what Jesus told Paul. And take courage is what he would tell us. Some of you are not going to be able to see uh, the baptisms that will take place at 1130. And I'm sad that you're not able to see those. But one of the baptism candidates, Sean Boland, who 
know quite well. One of the things he says in his testimony is he describes how God brought him to saving faith in Jesus. He says, this life now is not perfect. There are going to be hard times. He understands that the, the promise of the gospel is not that your life goes better. There are hard times and rough patches. I know that these things are, will all be part of my journey and purpose. And if I trust in God, I know that he will always be there to help me through anything. And that's what it looks like to hold on to the reality of the powerful presence of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, we do live in a world that generally is, is opposed to the gospel. That's always been the case. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we of all people, as Paul demonstrates, would demonstrate a deep confidence in God, the God who places everyone in authority over us for his purposes, that we would be the most respectful people, known for our prayer for our leaders, known for our respect of our leaders, known for us being thankful for our leaders, and that that would be a dominant theme of our lives. And that even when we appeal, even when we speak out, even when we need to say things, we will say them humbly, respectfully, appropriate to what you want us to be as God's people. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us too. I pray that we would make the resurrection of Jesus Christ the focal issue. I pray that you would give us opportunity to share about our hope in the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension would be the thing that, that marks us. That, that people around us who know us well know that that is what our hope is. That we would be faithful in sharing that hope. And lastly, I pray, Lord, that whatever we're going through, that we would be encouraged, strengthened, by the reality that God is orchestrating all the events of our lives and he will be with us to the end. He will accomplish all of his purposes in us and through us by and through his powerful presence which lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we draw strength from who we are in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.